welcome to our Connecticon, the on the power of communities. I want to uh, first of all welcome our wonderful lineup of speakers and our listeners. Um, for those of you that are here right now, and for those of you that are listening to the podcast or replay, Connect All is the community for connected work, a place for conversations, connections, and circles, a space to co-create uh, a new way of working. If you'd like to find out more about the community, please visit our website at www.connectall.com. We host regular conversations on connected work and would love for you to join us. Today, I wanna to kick off the community building series, a, a topic and I think series that's very dear and near to my heart. And uh, our first conversation in the series is on the power of communities. My name is Sean Simpson. I'm the director of community at the Kiwi Landing Pad. We grow New Zealand's technology community globally. Um, and I've been involved with communities in the past for about the last 10 years. Um, and really for me, um, I'm interested in, in seeing what you guys have, have to say about community. So do you want to first off introduce yourself and um, discuss maybe uh, what your link is to community? Start with you, Sam. Uh, sure, kia ora koutou and uh, good morning or afternoon, uh, everybody. Um, I'm based in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I work for a uh, group called MyCare. We're a, um, a nationwide um, sort of Airbnb type model of home care. Um, we, uh, my link to community, and I guess why I'm here, is uh, about seven years ago, I was involved in an earthquake response movement that was organized through Facebook, where we managed to get about 11,000 uh, students to help out um, in, in our community around Christchurch and clean up a whole lot of silt uh, that was created by the earthquakes. And ever since then, um, I've been curious, how do, we, how do we create a community like existed after the disaster? where people naturally help each other and they naturally want to help each other. But how do we do that without a disaster? And uh, so that's my link to community and, and I guess my curiosity that I go to work every day with around uh, how do we do that? So um, I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Rachel. Thank you, Sean. Um, I'm Rachel Hoppy. I founded a company called the Community Roundtable about a decade ago now, which is slightly scary. Um, my uh, interest is uh, interesting and long founded. My mother was a community organizer. She organized part of the Nestle boycott, which was one of the few successful corporate boycotts decades ago, um, back in the paper and mimeograph days. Um, and she dragged me around when I was a kid, but my father was also a congregational minister. Uh, and in that church, the congregation hires and fires its, its leaders. So you're only there by tacit authority of the lead. Um, it's a very democratic institution. Um, and, I, and I was very interested in power politics from a very early age. So I studied politics in school, then got into management consulting and software and all this other stuff uh, and started studying social software. And I realized that the way my parents managed, uh, which was mission and purpose driven and very expensive because it was mission driven and they felt strongly it needed to be that way, uh, was too expensive in the corporate world, but technology reduced the expense of managing that way. And it actually, uh, I feel like communities are the best way to enable the potential of humans because they give support and challenge to individuals. So I feel pretty passionately that now we're moving into an age where uh, the unique value of humans is our creativity, not our ability to be widgets, that we really need to enable people's potential. So that's kind of my philosophical bent on community. 
Tim. Go for it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm Tim McDonald. Um, I am the former director of community at Huffington Post, uh, and I started at HuffPost when they launched HuffPost Live. I'm kind of telling the story in reverse. Um, I usually tell it the other way, uh, <laughs> but um, I got involved in that because I had launched a site called My Community Manager, which used Google Hangouts and um, a Twitter chat to bring community managers together uh, every Friday for about three and a half, four years. Um, and that connected me with somebody at HuffPost who um, invited me to come to this job because he knew my passion for communities and, on, and live stream video. And um, I kind of got involved in my community manager because I was in real estate when the market crashed. <laughs> and, um, and I was using uh, social media, which was just coming about to connect with first time home buyers. And um, I did such a good job at not using it as a push tool, but using it as a listening tool and really understanding what people were looking for and trying to be helpful instead of trying to sell them my services that that turned into me getting uh, really known for using social media to connect with people and involved with uh, Social Media Club Chicago. And I was kind of volunteered to be this person in charge of communications. And I quickly learned that I was doing way more than just communications. It was, you know, running the Twitter, running the social, doing the email account, uh, helping, you know, coordinate volunteers, event coordination, event planning, you know, uh, customer service, customer experience. And I just, I, this is what drove the question into my mind when I first heard the word community manager is what is a community manager? And when I looked out there, there was very few resources. Rachel's um, community roundtable was one. And at the time that was very much like internal communities. Um, there was a gaming community, which if you said community management was new back then, they would slap you across the face because they've been doing this for you know many more years. And, um, and then there was like another one that was kind of geared around startups. And so I didn't really feel like I fit in any one of those buckets. And so that's why I just kind of created a site because if I couldn't find the information I was looking for, I figured other people would. And I kind of credit that to kind of leading me on the path of everything that I've done since then, including getting to the HuffPost and then since then just being being able to work with uh, companies and organizations that are interested in learning community building skills and getting a chance to really learn what they're trying to achieve and then help them um, understand how communities can be a part of making that happen. And lucky last, Kim. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Kim England, uh, Global Community Director at Pearson. So for those of you that don't know what Pearson is or who Pearson is, we're a, a global education technology company. Um, and I've been there just 10 years next month. Um, and my background is internal communications. Um, but uh, in 2008, 2009, kind of around the same time as the Roundtable, Community Roundtable was coming along. We um, were one of the early adopters of uh, Jive, the ESN. Um, and I kind of fell into being um, a community manager. And little did I know that actually it's the most perfect job for me because I love people, I love connecting people, I love joining lots of different um, pieces of our strategy at Pearson together and uh, being the kind of glue across the organisation and I really, really enjoy the job. Um, but more recently I've started to um, take a kind of active role um, really around uh, the refugee crisis in Europe, so very similar to you Sam. Um, I was really moved in 2015 by the just sheer volume of people that were coming through Europe and the humanitarian crisis that was unfolding in terms of people being stranded in fields and having no access to water or warm clothing. 
Um, and so I decided that instead of just doing nothing and kind of sharing stuff on social media, which is what a lot of people do about how terrible it is, I thought maybe I should do something. Um, and I was really struck by how the NGOs and some of the big charities couldn't help my request. They just wanted my cash. They didn't actually want my assistance. So I took it for myself uh, to borrow a transit van and I gathered uh, one winter clothing and with two other people, we drove it from here to Slovenia, which if you look on a map, I know if you're from the US, it's probably not very far, but if you're from London, it's a long way. <laughs> Germany's a big country and we drove the length of it. And we, you know, over a sort of 24, 48 hour period, uh, handed out that aid. We raised a ton of money on GoFundMe um, and we used that money to buy food and, and stuff. And then I came back and went to Lesbos in Greece and did something um, super similar. Um, then I had a baby, my second baby. So I had to put a lot of that stuff on pause. Uh, but I just got back from Lesbos last week where the humanitarian, humanitarian crisis is really not any less um, challenging than it was in 2015. It's just, it's not making the news. And so Sam, I, I wrote down when you said about the sort of response um, in Christchurch, is like, how do you naturally get people to help when there isn't a crisis? I think it's really similar with the refugee situations that there isn't a crisis right now um, for people to see on the news, but there is the need in the same way that there was um, when it was kind of making the news. And what's really, really interesting is how um, over sort of two to three years, the refugee crisis and the volunteers that are involved have created this enormous sense of community um, and how it's evolved using technology. So in the first days, we were all like on Facebook and Twitter, just kind of, you know, trying to figure out how we could find other people that could help us. And within a very short space of time, people had created Google Maps, which had really up-to-date information, Facebook groups using Google shared documents to update information, so now if you choose to volunteer, all of that information is at your fingertips um, and you're seeing a kind of evolution where WhatsApp is becoming more important, you know, on the demand uh, translations with refugees when there's, you know, a challenge, whether it's legal or whether it's, you know, a health related challenge, being able to overcome some of the language barriers using technology. So I'm really, really driven to see where we can take that kind of sense of community to really help fellow humans. Um, and, you know, to your point, Sam, really try and naturally help when there isn't a natural disaster kind of driving that, um, that need to be a community. Thanks so much, me. Kim. Awesome. So I guess from my side, I, we all know that community uh, is not a new concept and we all know that it takes a village. Um, I've learned a lot actually about community um, and what I do at the Kiwi Landing Pad from all the time that I've spent in rural Africa and observing tribal culture there, which um, I think we could all take some lessons away from. But I thought to kind of kick off the day, it would actually be really useful to quickly define what, what is a community to us. We had a little discussion um, just in the, in the speaker green room around, you know, what is a network or what is a database or those sorts of things. So do you guys just want to give us a, a few lines or words on um, what is a community to you? And, and then we'll kick into the rest of the questions. I'd love to start with this because I, I think that is the question that we have wrong when we say what is a community because community is who. It's people that come together around a shared purpose. It's like I don't need to, I don't think I need to make it any more complicated, at least in my definition. <laughs> I would say I think community for me from a work perspective um, and, you know, within the kind of work that I do outside of work, I think it's a shared purpose. So whether that's a shared purpose because you have a very similar job and you're building a community around, you know, sharing and um, 
the the, the swapping of skills and and kind of collaborating and, and and trying to generate you know ideas around what you do versus a shared purpose because you have a common interest in you know changing the world or saving the planet or whatever so i would say for me it's really about a shared purpose Oh, for me, it would it, it would be. Uh, I'm sorry, Rachel. To, uh, for me, it's around a group of people who have the the sense of permission and trust to to do what they want to do. I, I think we, we we face a crisis of agency around the world, where a lot of um, uh, people I know from the international volunteering sector uh, and our work here at home. There's a there's I think a crisis of permission. Where we don't, we 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 don't know that actually people can do a lot of things. They can go and uh, help out people in their local community. They can um, uh, start companies. You can you can we can do a lot. We're actually free to do a lot. But um, I come across a lot uh, in workshops and things. People say, "Oh, I, I didn't know I was allowed to do that." And one of the the, the tricks I think of community building is is helping just give people permission to do what they want to do. Um, without even having the permission to give it's not mine to give it's not yours to give but we can all give that permission and help increase someone's agency so i think that little nugget for me is one of the most important parts and i definitely agree with tim on on just a really that that simple phrase you said on, on what is community okay i'll tie it up in a bow for all of you because uh, i think shared purpose is absolutely critical i think if you don't have shared value the community disbands which is what you're talking about around agency and empowerment, right? If we're not all doing something together that we can't do alone, then we're just a network who all cares about the same thing, but we're not, we're not doing anything. And so all the people who are most interested in actually making impact will go away because they're like, yes, it's a nice idea, but unless we're all gonna like get together and build something, you know, it's just a nice idea. So to me, that's the kind of two sides of that coin. Can we kick off and can um, you guys talk about the sort of nexus of, of where you found yourselves in your community? Um, so, for example, Sam, when you mobilized 11,000 students to, to health in crisis, like what was what was that and how did you do that? And I guess what did you learn from it and what were some of the benefits? Kind of just want to get to, the, you know, that that main main point and sort of what the, what the power of that was. I think it would relate to what I said before, really, around the, the, the permission and trust. I mean, a lot of people didn't think that they were allowed to help after the crisis. Um, and so we were, we were, our task was to help ensure they did that and also did it in a safe and meaningful way. Um, and now, with, my, with what we do, um, you know, so we have a, a eight and a half thousand um, home care workers around the country who, um, uh, it's a peer-to-peer -peer model. They, somebody signs up, posts a job, somebody signs up and says, oh, I'll go and do that job, and we help them book and pay on the platform. And, and what we're trying to do is, is help those, those individuals do the, exactly the same thing we did after the earthquakes, which was identify something that they can help with and, and have the confidence to, to go and solve that challenge. And so it does for me, and I'm, I don't have the answers to this, um, it does for me come down to that agency and it comes down to that, uh, the, the backing that as an organization, as a community manager that we were able to give them. Um, and uh, for our, our company, we're certainly at a very uh, early stage of trying to do this. But I guess I know from the volunteer sector, 
that um, the, you, you, the, the importance of um, building uh, an organization or a community where you've got people of all different backgrounds and diversities within it, and that not setting people up in a, um, in a hierarchical sense or a, a teacher-student sense. Um, and my philosophical view is everyone has something to learn and everyone has something to share. So whether you're older or younger, or particularly what, what I do in the disability sector now in healthcare, um, we're trying to build relationships of mutuality and shared respect and understanding, um, rather than having an expert um, and, uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a different community member. So I think when we get to a stage where you can do that and actually where you have, say, um, an older person, a retiree and a younger person, uh, you, you get a lot of strength from, from that when you're both learning. And the best example is um, you know, teaching an older person how to use the computer. Uh, and we've all taught our parents how to use computers at different stage or being taught by our little brat kids how to use the cell phone for the third time or 15th time. Um, and we all love doing that, but, but it is uh, a, a case of um, having new things to share and new things to learn. Um, and so I'm interested in how we, how we better do that, how we, how we help people um, have mutual relationships and unlikely friendships. And particularly, you know, in New Zealand, we have a mental health crisis of uh, quite a significant proportion and it does expand around the world. And I, th I think a lot of the drivers of these, this lack of community is the fact that we don't connect with people as we used to. And we've got to help people connect in, in new ways. And, uh, and one of the th ways we try to do it is stop thinking about it in the hierarchy and just put it, put it around. And it's, you know, your expertise, many of the people on the panel around new power. Uh, and what does that mean in, in an everyday sense? And what I know in New Zealand is that there is, in every single street, there is a younger person and an older person. And in every single street, there is someone who needs care and someone who's happy to find some extra work. But structurally, we're not very good at, 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 at um, delivering those services in a non-institutional way. And so that's what I think we um, have to empower our communities to actually understand that there is a different model. And then they can, uh, they can help us as organizations uh, fight that battle and make those changes. So we had this conversation, Mara and I, last night when um, we were talking about this panel, because we had a very similar conversation um, in, in two ways. So the first is when we were talking about um, sort of how uh, the communities have built up around the refugees, one of the things that we agreed on is the same thing that you just pointed out, Sam, which is, is about permission. So it's about the fact that so many people don't actually feel like they could possibly do something or make something happen. And I've had a lot of people ask me that question, like, oh, you know, what do I need to do? How do I get started? And I'm like, literally set up a GoFundMe page, figure out which charity you want to work with and, and make it happen. It's the energy that goes into making it happen that's most important. But thinking about it from a corporate perspective, you have similar challenges when you think about things like innovation. I've been doing a lot of research at the minute about you know, why innovation or why organizations are innovative or why they aren't necessarily innovative. And a big piece of that is around trust. And a big piece is around um, employees feeling that they have permission to be innovative. And actually, those two things are the same, whether it's outside in the world of kind of, you know, volunteering or connecting people, or whether it's in the corporate space. And I think one of the things that I feel like I have the power to do within Pearson is to build that sense of trust through our community. Um, but I kind of never ask for permission. So <laughs> it's quite easy for me, but actually to really help encourage people who perhaps that doesn't necessarily come naturally to, it really then sort of centers around the cultural piece within your organization. And, and to your point, Rachel, about that shared set of values. Um, I'll, I'll 
talk about this from a human potential perspective. And actually, I learned this when I was volunteering with kids in San Francisco, maybe two decades ago. Um, I, I, had, I had done a lot of tutoring and then I all, all, all of a sudden realized that I couldn't actually critique these kids if they didn't feel like I was absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt on their side because they had been critiqued so much in their life that uh, they would immediately reject it. And I think most of us do that. We're just, we have a little better artifice typically than kids do when somebody critiques us, but we still get defensive. And so uh, what I learned from that is to progress, to learn, you first have to feel undoubtedly supported. And in a hierarchical uh, situation, you never feel truly supported because you understand there's a power differential. And so somebody supporting you from above, you're always like, that's their job. Like that's, that doesn't feel as authentic. Not that the person above them isn't supporting them, but it doesn't feel as authentic to an individual. And so that is like your baseline for getting somebody to trust, to open up, to um, relax actually, and just learn. And so, but if it's just supportive and not challenging, then that's a nice hug, but it doesn't push them off the anthill they need to be pushed off of. So, you, and if it's just challenging, like that doesn't, that, that's not, that just shuts me down. So you need both this support and challenge and the support has to come from your peers and the challenge ultimately has to come from your peers. So to Sam's point, it can't be a hierarchical structure. You need to provide that for each other. And that is ultimately what's empowering and gives people that permission to do something whatever that something is. So for me, that's, that's what communities can do that uh, more structured organizations just can't. I guess as communities sort of, just, Sam, do you want to respond to that? Uh, no, it's okay, I'll just speculate. Uh, so I guess as, um, I might have just lost my train of thought. Uh, community facilitators, um, obviously you're bringing people together, but the idea is to remove yourself from the center and, and just provide people with a platform to connect. How do you actually do that? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the, the biggest lessons I got at, you know, when I started at HuffPost, it was about, you know, when I brought people in, everybody was looking at me because I was like this person that was reaching out to people. I was the one who was thanking people. I was the one who was responding to people. and you know, as soon as I started realizing who the, who the key community people were, who, the, who were the most engaged people within this, this audience that we had that really wanted to do more, I, I think to what we just talked about, right? <laughs> like having that, um, having that, that willingness to, to want to do, be challenged to do something is I would help. Well, first I would ask if they were willing to do this because this is what we needed to help the community go. And then I would know when somebody came in with a question, even if it was directed to me, that I could pass them off to another community member that could then help them. 
because then I was removing myself from the equation, letting the other communities help each other. And over time, what started happening is I didn't need to have the questions come to me because everybody in the community started seeing who they could go to for specific questions. And, and that I think is, is really the, the key to it. The, the most ses- successful and healthy community is one that the community manager or community builder can remove themselves from and still have it grow and prosper. I think, I think if you do your job right, you're putting yourself out of a job. <laughs> I sort of agree and sort of disagree, which is um, I think there's a lot the community team, the community team as the community grows definitely s- starts receding into the background. Uh, but what becomes more important is governance and paving the, what I call paving the roads. Like people drive on roads. So uh, if you make if you pave a road, people will drive there. They won't drive across the grass. And so figuring out what the community wants to do and providing the infrastructure and administrative support to make those things the easiest possible things to do is a really critical role. And it's, uh, it's one the community can do, but usually it's more, um, it requires some investment, right? So like one community member can't say, I'm gonna pave the roads, I don't have a million bucks. Um, but the community as a whole can have that investment vehicle. Um, and so to me, that's the role of community leadership or management in the end is to provide the structure that the community needs to be productive. Rachel, do you think we do that well? I mean, what, what, I'm curious your experience on it. Do we, do, we, do we undercook this area all the time? I mean, a lot of people are talking about community. It's a very trite word a lot of the time. You know, we're going to build community. We're going to do this. But what, 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 are our, what are our habits and trends? Do we typically underinvest or invest in the wrong way as organizations in this? I, I think so. And the reason, part of the reason is the structure of organizations. The way we invest today is functionally. Like we have line items for marketing and sport, whatever. Communities don't stay within boxes. Like if you have a customer community, they don't care whether they're talking to marketing or support. And so communities then generate value cross fun And we have, we have research that's coming out on this. Right. Like three weeks. Um, but you can see support communities generate more marketing value than marketing communities, right? So then that, uh, that is both the power of organizationally, organizationally sponsored communities and also the challenge because it runs smack up against all the political, structural um, systems of current organizations. And people don't like that because it threatens their authority or whatever. And so um, I think uh, the way communities then are impacting digital transformation is uh, as the community power grows, you start having to adapt those structures to become less functional and more experiences, right? Employee experiences, customer experiences but that goes against how we think about everything and organize everything today. So it's a, there's a lot of power there. There's not as much investment because of this power play, who invests, where do we invest? 
et cetera. Well, and, and, and probably when, when are we going to see the return, right? Yeah. Like how quick is that return going to happen? Right. And so like the problem with communities is they're compounding. So like if you look at economics, the thing that changes e any economics is behavior change. Communities are great at socializing new behaviors and reinforcing them. Awesome. But like to change the first person's behavior to get the one crazy person doing something different than everybody around them costs a lot of money. And it costs a lot of money for a while until you reach an inflection point where more people are like, oh yeah, I'll be the crazy dancing man. That's why the dancing man video gets played all the time. Um, and that is a different curve than the linear process investments that we have in most organizations. So if I produce 2x content, I should get 2x views on that content. It doesn't have that same dynamic. And so that's, that's a lot of the work that I do is on that uh, stakeholder investment ROI measurement side because mm -hmm. stakeholders today don't understand when they're going to get the payoff, mm. what the payoff is going to do cross-functional. Like, it's a little bit of a, I don't want to say it. hot mess is the wrong word, but it's, it's complicated. I think we could have an interesting debate here around the future of marketing and actually where that's going. Um, staying on this topic, um, I guess I really wanted to explore community as a currency. I think for a long time, um, one of the ways I sort of preface this, like everyone knows how to use money, but a lot of people don't pay enough attention to the other types of currency, like time, knowledge, attention, um, social capital, those sorts of things. So can we have a little discussion around going beyond ROI and money um, and those benefits of community and community beyond or well, as a currency in itself? Who wants to start? I, I can start since I got into the, us into the ROI thing. Because um, uh, the ROI is I feel like it's really important because it's a good communication tool for executives, but it can't capture all value. It can't capture empathy. You can't put a price on empathy. So like that's not part of the financial ROI model that we use. Um, and it's the, the thing that communities do is they speed information transfer. And that's the thing that we can assign financial value to. We can make processes quicker, faster, better, whatever. I think it's the least interesting value that communities have. And there's two other values that I see. And uh, we got to talking about one of them, which is this shared ownership. It's you don't own it. I don't own it. We are going to jointly kind of figure out a solution and own it. Um, and that means I have to commit. I have to sign up. I have to own part of that. And I think getting people to that shared ownership is what empowers them to act, right? So like, that's really important. The third one is uh, the most powerful and can be really awful or really wonderful, depending on what it is, but it normalizes behaviors. So that can be a cult, that can be some questionable pol political, things going on in the world, um, that can be a wonderful supportive, challenging, equal democratic environment. But communities really normalize 
behaviors. And so if you're not careful about what's being normalized, it can go off the rails pretty quickly. And it's a very powerful mechanism of communities. But it introduces all sorts of ideas or um, topics around ethics. I think for me as well, one of the things that is always a challenge from my kind of being a community manager in a corporate environment is what to measure um, in terms of what you see the value. Because I think there's a real danger at the minute with some of the new kind of um, communities on the block um, that shall remain nameless for now, where the driver is very much on how many people have viewed the content, how many people have liked the content. Um, and actually, you know, if that's the measurement that you're placing on the community, I think you're going to get a very low value in terms of return on investment. Because for me, the return on investment is when people actually take a call to action. So they're engaging with the content. And that's when I kind of put my internal comms hat on and I say, it's the difference between communicating or broadcasting and actually true engagement. Because let's face it, you could have a thousand likes on a piece of content, but it's actually not necessarily driving a change or people to do something differently. And I would then sort of bring that full circle to the refugee crisis piece, because one of the things that frustrated me the most was just to see how many of my friends on my Facebook, on my Twitter, were saying it was so terrible and they felt so bad, but they literally did nothing. They didn't donate five pounds. They didn't, you know, write to their MP. They didn't do anything. And I think we see this kind of real sense that if I've liked something and I've shared it, then I've done my piece actually that adds no value whatsoever what adds value is you know getting eleven thousand students to go and do something in new zealand during a disaster so i think we need to be really really careful that within a corporate environment we're not placing too much of an emphasis on the wrong metrics that drive the wrong behaviors or at least they play to the leaders um you know need or desire to see that number tally up but actually nothing really changes within an organization Something that's uh, quite interesting happening down in New Zealand at the moment with our government and related to this measurement uh, piece that you mentioned, Sean, is um, what's called our Living Standards Framework. And it's something that our Treasury, uh, Department of Treasury, has developed and is now trying to implement. And so as a, as a business working with government a lot, um, we are now starting to turn our mind to what are the four capitals that we can report back to government and actually help government officials report on. And so those four capitals are, is one, there's natural capital, around everything in the natural environment, the social capital, um, which uh, all, all, everything we're talking about, um, uh, including trust, the rule of law, um, the relationship between our Maori, our, our iwi, uh, um, our tribes in New Zealand, and, uh, um, and, the, and, the, and the government, and the connectedness between people, the natural, um, the social, and then human capital, which is people's skills and knowledge, and then financial and physical capital. Um, and so we're, we're trying to think about this and it's great, you know, we're very lucky to have a, um, you know, a government that's pushing this at the moment. Um, but it is very difficult to do, but when, when we talk about measuring the impact of a community, when you push it across the different uh, aspects, there are a lot of benefits. Um, so I'm quite excited if, if this does take off and, and we're actually able to do that, you'll be able to show a lot, measure a lot more of the softer things that, um, and, and have that recognized by funders uh, and contract managers uh, around this. 
This is uh, quite an interesting point, Sam, because I think, you know, we all have our indexes all over the world, but I think, you know, the wellness index is one of the biggest things that's missing um, in a lot of places. I was actually having a conversation with someone the other day where I was like, oh, your country's the happiest place in the world to live. And he was, his response was, oh, but we're also the most medicated. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, that's such a fascinating um, example. And so I think that we need to almost be more holistic um, in our approach, but I'm not as, I'm not sure how how exactly you do that. And I think it's quite an interesting thing of like, I guess the power of community, does that have an impact on policy or countries? Um, does anyone have any further thoughts on that? Well, I know, I mean, at Help Post, one of the things that, you know, we didn't really measure it, but I mean, it was, you know, our, some of our most valuable community members, you know, we invited to help us design what the product looked like and be part of that team, just like they were on our tech team without the salary, without, you know, knowing everything about the business. But from the user point, coming in, having conversations with our product team to understand what we were developing, were we on the right path, were we not on the right path? And, and you know, to me, it's like those kind of things that you, you know, it's not big enough, like in the overall role of what our community was there for to, you know, implement measurement on but you look at the impact that they're creating for, for what your product ends up looking like, um, what your community is doing on, you know, helping you, helping your HR team, you know, hire new employees instead of, you know, going out, you know, I mean, you know, we can go on and on with all those things. And if I don't have the systems and the tools in place to measure what the impact is on those things, I, I kind of go towards more the, you know, the, the qualitative storytelling and, and share those stories so that it's not getting lost when we're reporting that up, you know, you need to let people know that there are these other kind of unmeasurable impacts that are, are we're seeing. And I know I'm not talking about governments or, or anything like you asked, but, but it really is in, in organizations. And I see this all the time. And, and even like with, with the nonprofit that I do some work with and, and some other places that I've been, I always kind of tell those stories of what's behind some of the numbers that we're seeing. So nobody ever lose sights that it's the people that are making this happen. It's, it's not just the, the report and the numbers that, that everybody wants to see. Because even though that's what drives business, ever, even executive levels still want to know that they're having an impact on, on people that are, they're associating with. And so I think that's like the, the key thing for me is, is making sure that you're, you're telling those stories in a way and capturing them in that way if you don't have the systems and the metrics in place to capture it from a, a quantitative standpoint. So here, here's my perspective on this because I do this, uh, both kind of instinctively when I'm in a room presenting or when I'm looking at metrics. So if I could only measure one thing in a community, it would be the percentage of the total community that is asking questions. Mm -hmm. Because that indicates to me that they trust the space enough to be vulnerable. Uh, I can track it over time to see if that's increasing or decreasing. Uh, it won't increase if they're not getting answers. So like back to like, uh, to get pe more people to ask questions, you need to make sure they're getting answers. But more critically, for me, it's a psychological tipping point where people are starting to take on that shared ownership. I am starting to pursue the solution myself rather than just receive whatever's out there I'm starting to pursue something. So it's that transition from passive to active. Um, and like, 
it, so when I do presentations, if I had not inspired any questions, I've failed. Like, how do you I, do that with um, omnipresent communities that are offline and online? Or um, I don't know if you've worked with like other cultures where it's like what I found with New Zealanders, for example, a lot of them really don't like to engage online, but they'll rally around a cause on the offline. Um, so how, how do you cope with those things? Well, again, I don't necessarily measure, like meaning I don't go to a presentation, present and be like 10 people ask me a question, but I use it as an internal marker of, if I didn't get any questions, I didn't, I didn't engage that audience. If I got a lot, I did. So I use it just as a mental marker. You can use it as a measurement online, but I don't necessarily think it has to be a firm measurement. It's just when I'm creating content, when I'm doing anything, I'm always doing it with an eye towards, will this generate questions? Will it, will it make people think in a way that makes them want to pursue something further. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, and culturally, there's, there's some cultures who don't ask questions at all. So um, I'm speaking primarily for American and or maybe European audience there, um, because those are the cultures I've worked with the most, but there's other issues in other cultures around that. I think that's that's key to communication, right? It's understanding who you're who you're trying to reach, who you want to talk to. Um, I used to remember when I was in real estate. There, you know, I was talking with somebody who had been in real estate for a long time, and I was like, you know, talking to somebody on Twitter on my phone. This is back in the day when most people didn't even know what Twitter was, um, and and it was a potential client. And he's like, "You're going to go meet them at at you know nine o'clock tonight for a, a drink," and and I'm like, "Well, yeah." that's when they can meet me. And he goes, oh no, you need to set up your office hours, shut off your phone when you're not, you know, when they're not there. And I'm like, but you don't understand. These are the people that I, I am connecting with. These are the people that I'm there. So it's the same thing. I mean, when I went to Denmark, I started talking about, you know, how we should use social media to reach out to people and find people. And I started talking about Twitter because that's what I use all the time. Well, I learned that very few people outside of politicians and journalists in Denmark use Twitter, but they use Facebook like crazy. So now when I go and talk to them, I talk about Facebook more than I talk about Twitter when, I, when it comes to social media. It's just understanding that whole concept of how people use communication tools, what communication tools they use and, and what they feel comfortable doing. And then, laying it out and making it easy for them to to reach you on those channels and be present there don't don't just because you're used to doing one thing one thing one way doesn't mean that other people are going to going to be comfortable using it that way and it's about us taking ourselves out of what we know and putting ourselves and learning right about how others want to communicate with us i think that's the biggest key whether it's online or offline Awesome. I'm going to uh, ask another question because I am conscious of time. Um, if we could um, maybe just give a short answer to this. It's three parts. So evolution of community over the last 10 years. What was the uh, uh, earliest community that you remember being part of? Uh, what's your favorite community? And what do you think are good examples of the communities you've been a part of? Might need a second to think about it. I'll, I'll answer because I jotted down some notes. Uh, the first online community I was a part of, and I can't remember the name, but Fast Company had a group of something, innovators, something. 
uh, and I, I really enjoyed that community a lot. Uh, what's happened over the last 10 years, what I think the internet has done for communities is allowed us to see and understand their dynamics. Uh, I think of them as complex adaptive systems. And in the old day, when my dad had his congregation of 500 people, you couldn't see everything that was happening. Ha things happened in private rooms, on the telephone call, on the, and like the amount of effort you'd have to go through to like get everybody on the same page was enormous. Um, and, and you couldn't really see what tipped the balance or like what, what made sentiment change. It was all really um, opaque. And online, we can, we can see the dynamics of communities. So we've learned a ton about them. Um, and because we've learned a ton about them, we can now kind of understand how to impact them and or manage them more effectively. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, I think community building was always an implicit responsibility of leadership. And now we can be more explicit about that as an objective of leadership. If you are not creating a trusted community in your organization, you are failing. Uh, you're not doing your job as a leader. And so ultimately, like that's where I think this is all going. And now when we tell people they're failing, we can give them some ideas of how they might succeed at that versus just saying you're not doing this well, oh well. Sam, go for it. Oh, um, I, I'm refl very reflective about this. Uh, I mean, I think the, the, the community I um, most fondly remember was my university college um, hall uh, because it was so, uh, so connected and, and we, we were together a lot and just, you know, what a college is like. You, you are together. And actually, I find, I find life quite lonely a lot of the time. I travel a lot for work. I, I, I'm head of community for, for an organization. We've got a huge number of people. But it, but it is it, we haven't figured it out yet, and it is still very disjointed. And I think we are not very good, and um, we've got a lot to learn. I think from the states around building online community, and I think it's um I'm really just really so excited to have met you met you all in this this conversation because I think there is a a huge isolation aspect around this work and uh, it, I'm not a great connector online I, I don't I you know WhatsApp WhatsApp groups of friends from Asia particularly in the volunteer sector and you know we, we chat a lot but it's it, it doesn't really feel connected and I think um, we are lose, lacking a bit of that purpose so the, the group that I, I really um, uh, I've been very inspired by recently this is one of your questions Sean um, it's actually the disability community in New Zealand that they're going through huge changes structural changes in the way their funding works here and I'm a big admirer the way that they've uh, you know out of necessity and shared purpose have had to work together I mean they literally fight tooth and nail the Ministry of Hell or I mean health as they call it um, to try and get their funding and, and it's it's inspiring to me to see the way they've done that and they are so committed to the cause because their lives depend on it and i think that that's it's it's less it's not fluffy it's not nice it's not civil it's it's like the arts it's completely dysfunctional but they have to do it and and i've seen this amazing sense of community come out of that and i think that's um that's inspiring to me and i and i am i'm interested how we how we do that within our work and and um and uh, how we do it as as as, uh, as people who do this work too, because it's uh, it can be lonely. 
I'm not, you're not alone on the loneliness thing. I laugh about this every time when everyone assumes that I'm busy and I end up having dinner by myself most, most of the time. Um, okay, Kim, your thoughts on your favorite community? So I would say the first community that I really felt like I was part of a community was actually the Jive community, which, so Jive is the vendor that, um, that's recently been bought out by Aurea. But um, thinking back to that kind of lonely piece, place I was the community manager for 45,000 employees I had no idea what really community management was um, I was introduced to Rachel through the community round table but I think where I really found my first tribe was in that drive community because there was people in there doing exactly the same as me it's where I met Mara um, and I think the way that they brought people together both from a online perspective and then also in person through Jive World um, which was a, a conference that they had annually and through the sort of local meetups, I just felt like I was really part of something. Um, and I'm almost mourning that a little bit at the minute as that has evolved um, and I'm really sort of missing it. But in terms of good examples of communities as well, just from a personal perspective, becoming a first time mum was a really big deal. And I am so glad that I had Facebook and other um, websites by my side for those kind of, you know, three o'clock in the morning, oh shit moments, I'm breastfeeding a baby, am I doing it wrong, I'm having doubts, I'm all alone. And actually I never really felt very alone when I was in those early stages of being a mum and, and then second time around as well, because there was this enormous community. I had a private Facebook group with mums that had, had babies at the same time as me, an NCT group, and then kind of more generalist group for the style of parenting that I'd picked. And actually I think that's so, so helpful, especially when we think about people's mental health and the challenges that we face, having that kind of support network and some of the things we've done as mums to help each other is really phenomenal. So that would be a good example for me. Well, and I guess, um, I think the, you know, it's hard for me to remember the earliest um, online community <laughs> I belonged to, but I think it, probably the one that made the biggest impact on me was, um, they're not even around anymore, but it was a uh, spreecast, which is a, you know, live streaming service. And I think it was the first time I realized that you could just go out and do something and other people in that community just wanted to support you. And I still have lasting friendships from, from that community today that have nothing to do with live stream video now, <laughs> just because we got to know each other so well um, through that community. Um, and I think, you know, over the 10 years, I think the, the biggest thing that's changed and, and I think it's good and it's bad is that more people are aware of the word community. When I say community now, everybody's got an opinion on it. When I said it 10 years ago, hardly everybody's like, what are you talking about? You run, you know, cause they knew I was in real estate. They think I ran a, uh, a condo building, you know, an apartment building. <laughs> um, and, and those still are called community managers, right? But, but it, it really has evolved into this, this really, I think, intelligent conversation about what what the power of community is and it's not a power that you can dictate it's kind of a power that you need to understand how to harness and and i think that's a huge difference um I, and one of the the communities that i really i've just been involved in it for so many years um is a nonprofit here in the u.s called share our strength and they're more commonly known for their campaign called no kid hungry which is to end childhood hunger in america and you know there's a ton of people it's a very big nonprofit here but 
there's a core group of us that's called the social council. And in that community, um, they're kind of like my family. They, they know, you know, we know each other. We get together when we're in each other's towns. We, you know, we host events together. We support each other's fundraising campaigns. Um, we get to know what's going on. If we're both going to the same conference, even on a different topic, we can go talk to them. And it really, you know, it really to this day is still one of those things that, you know, the name share our strength comes from the fact that the founder knows that each one of us has a strength to share. And it's not about the organization telling you what you need to do. It's about listening to what, you, what you're passionate about doing, the impact that you want to create, the skills that you have to offer, and then matching you with something, the tools that they have to make it happen and empowering you to, to go out and do something to make a change for to end childhood hunger. So um, that's probably one of, my, you know, one of my ones that I've seen is making a huge impact uh, still to this day. Awesome. Um, how do you, I'm not sure how to say your name, but is it M Michael or Mikhail? You're on mute. Sorry. There you go. Oh, on mute again. Yep, there you go. I uh, can't hear you. Let's try this one. With, now, go. can you hear me? Yeah, okay, so the earplugs didn't work. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Michal. Yeah, it's a challenging, challenging name, I know. Um, and I'm from Jerusalem in Israel. So uh, we know here a lot about community in, uh, in uh, when things go wrong, and also how to fight uh, one another when things are calm and not uh, work as a community. So uh, we definitely have it all here. And uh, thank you for a great conversation. I, I, I wrote something uh, from each and every one of you, so thank you very much. And I guess that my question would be um, about temporal and constant and temporal and the dynamics of community over time and as it grows, because I feel, so I'll give a little bit of my background. I'm working on a startup that is about to create communities bottom-up in organizations. Uh, so uh, this is really, and I use organizational network analysis and data to bring kind of data into driving people uh, to, to become their better selves within their context and environment. And what I see in organization is that once you go, you know, above, so from a startup, you start and then 35 people, 75 people, 150 people and then you go and become bigger and bigger um, so there's scale and there's time and I wonder what are your perspectives on this from a community standpoint and how community evolve and change and grow and manage over time. So I can give you my perspective from from working at Pearson and having a community um, for eight years so a lot of people say to me why are you still at Pearson being a community manager at the place that you started and it's because the role is not the same. It has evolved so much. So um, in the early days, the big thing for us was about engagement. So how many people could we get on the platform? How many people could we engage with? What was the number? That was the only thing we measured, how many people had logged in. And then it became more about that kind of value piece. And now we're seeing it sort of evolve again. And I think the evolution for us is happening because there's a technology evolution happening around us. So people are a lot more familiar with 
um, you know, Facebook and scrolling through a feed as opposed to going into kind of a messaging board sort of style community. Um, I think, Tim, to your point, even just the word community, you know, people are a lot more familiar with it. So I think um, that definitely evolves in, in, in terms of, of, of what's actually happening. But in terms of size, what I would say is it really doesn't matter, I think, in, in my opinion, and, you know, this is just my opinion, um, about whether the, the size is super, super small or whether the, the community is really massive. It really comes down to whether there's, in it, whether there's, in, there's something in there for me. So the question we always ask ourselves is what's in it for me? So has the community got something for me? And I think the thing that you'll need to, to do as you grow and as you get bigger is just make sure that you're catering to a wider audience and a bigger group of people. So, you know, some of that intimacy might go and it may, might mean that you need to kind of break off and have, you know, other kind of intimate groups in different ways. But I think as long as you're ask, answering that question of what's in it for me, then I think you will be able to scale up um, as, the, as the group um, grows. But, but that's just my opinion. Oh, you're on mute, Rachel. I was going to say, I uh, when we work with communities internally or even externally, there's different types of communities. So there's communities of practice, there's collaboration communities, there's corporate communications communities. All of them have different cadences uh, and different sizes depending on the business use case. Meaning, if I'm trying to communicate broadly, I obviously need a broad community. If I'm trying to really innovate, I need a high degree of trust. That's a lot harder to get in a really big network, like a really big community. So I might have smaller communities for that. Um, so I see a lot of options and some patterns to the different kinds of communities that get created, whether internally or externally. And uh, in any one organization, they might have different patterns to another organization on that. So I'm going to make it a little bit harder. How many communities can a person actually be involved in? Because I feel that sometimes I, I meet people that tell me I'm lonely, although they're registered online to like 10 com different communities. Um, but there's just, I feel like there's so much now that we want to do. Like I'm here in Israel. I know what's happening in Syria. I know what's happening in Africa. I see what's happening in Europe. You're talking about New Zealand and I've been there, you know, and it's just, you want to be a part of so much and, and, and then you end up being like just overwhelmed and being in all, all of these things, but really sometimes stranded, I feel like that's the, what I get from people that I talk to. So I was wondering what your thoughts about. I'm interested in your comment and then also that comment from David in the chat there around uh, community doesn't always mean connection. I mean, are we, should, we, should we be stopping talking about community and just focusing on connection? Uh, is, is community the sort of the new marketing? It's sort of like on the way out. And actually what we've got to try and do is, is focus on authentic connection. And it doesn't matter if that's with a thousand people or two people, actually. I, I, I find that there's a, a trend, a way, uh, you know, teaching with, just within our student group at uh, university, I mean, helping create friendships, unlikely friendships between different people. The, the, we, we, we focus on the conversation skills. We focus on how to, during a volunteer project, how to get people talking to someone they wouldn't normally. And, and giving people those couple of questions to ask. And that's something that we saw after the earthquakes here. If you have just one thing in common, then people can form a friendship. 
And for us, and what we saw in a whole city and what we've seen in disasters around the world, if you have a disaster, you've, you've all experienced something. So you have one thing in common. And from that one thing in common, you can form a friendship. And so what is it that we need to do as community managers that can help our communities see they've got something in common with another person and they can form a friendship and a bond. And they'll talk positively about the community and the community manager and the, and the organization because they've had that connection being, being made. I would take that even one step further and say, can we help people have difficult conversations? Yeah. Because that's the thing that's lacking uh, online in general is having the meaningful conversations that we need to have of who are we, what do we value? And knowing how to do that though, like how, where do yeah. we teach people to have difficult conversations? I mean, even at our company, we're not very, we're terrible at it. We're trying to drive the culture to, to have those difficult conversations, right? You know, from the board through to the, the managing director. And it's difficult. And when you've got people who come from a very hierarchical, I'm going to get in trouble now, come from a very hierarchical old style of management and try to push it into a new model. When you, when you decentralized a company of 20 people with 8,000 workers have signed up on the platform. I mean, it requires a totally different mindset and operational. So how do we help people transition across, but also help uh, people like us all transition back to understand what are those ways. And that's the divide I find myself in every day. I trying to do things on a, well, on a linear sense, because that's my job, but then actually, well, what's going to work is doing it in a totally new way. Uh, and I fundamentally so, believe it. So you know what I've been thinking about lately is we need people who are comfortable with discomfort, which is not the existing leadership style. This is why we need to hire diverse sets of leaders, because people who have been disenfranchised have been uncomfortable for decades. Yeah. They have a lot really. of experience yeah. having difficult conversations. Our current, I, and I'm making a broad swath like of generalization, <laughs> but a lot of them is as soon as you get emotionally discomforted, they are out. And of course, all the important conversations make you uncomfortable. Yeah. I would also say, I think one of the things that, um, you know, I've seen so many panels about how millennial, millennials um, are coming into the workplace and they're really familiar with communities and they really understand how communities work just because they know how to pick up a phone and use Facebook or Snapchat. But actually my um, experience is the complete opposite. When I think about the relationships that I have with particularly young people who will name, remain nameless, they are building really hollow relationships online which center around you know, how many likes they've got on an Instagram post. Um, and you know it's a kind of like me, like me, that real sense of, you know, I probably used to go and buy shoes, you know, people of the next generation, and it's all about how many likes they've got on Instagram. But actually that means that they're not really building those connections um, and they're not having those deeper meaningful relationships, which I think is really where a lot of people are starting to see that kind of deterioration of mental health um, and that kind of concern. So actually if we're thinking that the leaders of tomorrow need to be able to have difficult conversations, need to be able to be comfortable with difficult conversations, I'm not sure whether we're preparing um, the next generation to be able to, to manage in, in that environment. Um, you know, I see some really amazing leaders, especially in some of the charity work that I've done who are young and they, they have that sense of permission and they're really ready to go. But I think we're also sort of set creating this almost um, perfect storm uh, with how social media is playing out. Um, I am... Um... 
Thanks so much, guys. Um, just conscious of time. Um, I definitely think, I said when I was 15 that one of the biggest challenges we would have in, uh, with our future generations is actually teaching them how to communicate again. And I think um, it comes back to the original point in the conversation is, do we need to figure out a way of teaching empathy and compassion so that we can bridge our differences, which are becoming, in essence, more and less at the same time, right? And the world is much more connected, but connection is, is relative. Um, I guess some, to someone's point, it's, it's access, but it's not necessarily connection. So um, I just think one final point, um, super fast, um, around, you know, what uh, just wrap community in one sentence for you. And uh, just for you guys who are listening, um, we're actually gonna stop the recording, but we're gonna continue the discussion um, after this as well. one final uh, sort of wrap for each of you on community. So I'll go first. So for me, community is life. If I don't have community, I don't get my energy. I don't get the things that get me out of bed in the morning, whether that's work or outside of work. So community for me is life. I was going to say something very similar. I don't know if I was going to use the word life, but it's health, right? It's success. It's my, it's my personal success. And I guess for me, I can say that uh, community gives my purpose focus. Well, I would agree with all of it. Uh, 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 something very interesting to do every day and uh, <laughs> meaningful. A reason to get out of bed. Awesome. Thanks so much. Um, so I guess, Mara, is this where we stop? Do a wrap. So I guess thanks so much for joining us today um, on Connecticon and um, exploring the power of community with us. Um, I guess the first in a series um, from building community. And um, for those of you that would like to stick around, uh, we're going to stop the recording now and, and continue chatting.